one of the messages that I want to get out to the industry that I feel really passionate about is that I think as an industry, we need to have a united front of positivity mm-hmm. because I think, gosh, the naysayers are out there, but we really proved them wrong. Look at us still standing. Mm-hmm. However, I think that it will only behoove us if as an industry, we really get out there with a positive message that mm-hmm. we are back, that we have options, that we have upgraded, that we are mm-hmm. ready to entertain the mm-hmm. general public. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Rebecca Polly, Deputy Editor at Box Office Pro, the pulse of theatrical exhibition. Joined here today for the second and final installment of our Geneva Convention series. Here along with me to uh, go over the news in box office over the last week are Chad Kennerk, analyst at Box Office Pro, and Russ Fisher of Box Office Studios, which provides editorial content to movie theaters. After we go over the news in box office, in our feature segment, we have an interview with Chief creative officer Bobby Bagby Ford of B&B Theaters, talking about kind of the evolution of, of marketing, of, of spectacle, of, of really creating an event uh, to bring people out to the cinemas. Really, as you'll hear, it's, uh, it's a topic that's very fitting, giving some of the week's news that came out. But before we get to that, let's have a catch up on what's going on with various unions and their various acronyms, WGA, SAG, IATSE, AFTRA, Russ, I know uh, last week we talked about the WGA deal, which I believe was confirmed several Monday afternoon. It was confirmed several hours after we recorded. So can you give us a little update on where that deal went and what impact it might have on the SAG after negotiation deals, which hopefully will be wrapped up soon so that actors can start doing promo for upcoming films? I'm not going to go into every uh, point of the deal because there are many points. I mean, it's a it's a very broad deal. But there are a couple of good things to know. One is that the deal uh, is valid from now through May 1st, 2026. And it covers a whole lot of different points. It gives basically uh, rate increases to writers across the board tiered over three years. There are new minimums for feature scripts, increased uh, contributions to health and pension plans. Finally, a breakdown of pension contributions and health contributions for writer teams. So until now, if you were part of a two-person writing team, that team got one health and pension contribution for those two people to split, which is insane. (laughs) It's insane. Like that, that is crazy. Um, and, and writing teams are not uncommon, especially for younger writers, for comedy, for television. So that's a big deal. I mean, there are a lot of people that for whom that one point is going to be a life changing thing because suddenly they have health insurance, which is great. The two most interesting points to a lot of people, and which might also be interesting with the ongoing SAG-AFTRA negotiations, have to do with artificial intelligence. So there are some basic regulations now in place for use of AI on projects that are covered by this deal. They include stipulations that AI cannot write or rewrite literary material and that AI-generated material will not be considered as source, meaning that Basically, if there is AI-generated material used at at some point in the process, that whoever ends up writing or rewriting that material can't be denied credit based on the idea that, well, they're adapting it from AI-generated material. You can still use AI, but you're not going to be able to use it as an excuse to not pay actual writers, basically. 
the basic thing is that AI can be used by companies or by writers, but it has to be fully disclosed across the board. And, you know, the WGA reserves the right to assert that exploitation of writers' material to train AI is prohibited, which is a, you know, a, a useful point. So that's a big deal. And then the other thing is that there are new deal points for residuals paid for streaming and especially from foreign territories and with viewership-based streaming data. And ultimately, the takeaway from all of this is that potentially writers can earn a lot more from residuals, which is good, and that to do so, streaming data will be shared with the WGA subject to non-disclosure agreements. And some of that data is going to be aggregated as well. So you can be certain that streaming companies are going to do everything they can do to keep that data private or to make it as undecipherable as possible. And it remains to be seen. It's still cracking the wall of this, just so to this point, impenetrable blank wall of nobody knows any streaming numbers except for when the studio when the streaming outfits want to release them and in that case you can't even really verify if they're accurate or not absolutely yeah so you know the idea is that all those numbers are still going to be private but i think everybody kind of knows that that's going to break at some point this data is going to leak or be released somehow and so if nothing else if contractual negotiations for the contract that follows this one in 2026 become an issue you can very easily assume that maybe some data will be made public as part of the negotiations for that contract depending on how much hardball needs to be played Okay. I mean, hopefully, or possibly, we we eventually get to a point where, in order to have uh, to avoid the situation of data being leaked and interpreted in in certain ways, depending on you know who's who's releasing it or or who's uh, you know who's a conduit for that information, you know, just release the numbers so it's all out there in black and white. I mean, I guess we went from it looking like that was never going to happen to at least kind of having a move in that direction, which I think, especially considering, you know, on the movie side of things, more and more streamers uh, getting into the theatrical, uh, theatrical side of the equation is this positive news. I mean, more data, the better. Though that said, speaking of, of the, the kind of movie cinema industry side of these this series of strikes, the SAG-AFTRA strike is still going on as we record this about midday on Monday, but we are seeing some progress, Russ. Where are we with that? Yeah, so uh, SAG-AFTRA, which is the combined actors, used to be two unions, now it's one, represents actors, broadly speaking, uh, still on strike. Back to the negotiating table with the producers organization, Ampus, uh, today, uh, Monday, October 2nd. And certainly the WGA deal is seen as a very good indicator that progress can be made because actors are asking for many of the same things that writers were asking for, uh, certainly better streaming information, different residuals, and then also just the question of AI. Uh, with actors, it's a little different as far as AI goes. You know, there are a lot of reports about the scanning of background actors and then sort of a perpetual reuse of those scans as a digital asset uh, with no additional money going back to that performer, which seems like a non-starter or it should be a non-starter. So that's a that's a big deal point. There are other big deal points that have to be worked out. And you'll see different levels of optimism or pessimism from bargaining reps from SAG, depending on who you read and 
and or who you talk to. But the point is that they are back to the bargaining table after quite a long stalemate. And certainly SAG has new ammunition with Ampus having signed this agreement with the WGA. That's a very good sign that producers are ready to get everything moving again because money is being lost and or left on the table. So hopefully, you know, things can be resolved and everybody can get back to work. But as far as a timeline, I don't think anybody is going to go out right now saying like, yeah, it's going to be resolved this week or, you know, nobody knows. So WGA one when it, and when it came together, it came together super quickly. So I think whenever it is, we'll we'll probably not have a ton by way of advance notice. I mean, whenever we talk about, about these issues, you can rest assured that whatever information that we're saying on Monday, that by the time you listen to it on a Thursday, there could very likely have been new developments. There may be developments, yeah. And so the, the button on all of this is that WGA is resolved. With any luck, uh, sag after will be resolved soon. But then there is, uh, in 2024, another agreement that expires, which is the IATSE agreement, aka the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, a union which, full disclosure, I was formerly a member of. I've not been a member in almost 20 years, but once upon a time I was IATSE. And now IATSE covers a lot of different workers uh, from like you know Broadway companies. Like If you go see live music at a big venue, there's a good chance that that's an IATSE shop, things like that. But specifically, with respect to movies and television, the agreement that IATSE has with the producers organization expires in 2024. The last, it's a three-year agreement. The last one they signed was in 2021. And at that point, a strike was very narrowly averted. It, it looked like IATSE could strike for the first time, I believe, in the organization's history. The WGA has, has struck quite a few times. IATSE does not strike as a group, by and large. So now we're looking at three years after that agreement was signed. It's been a very rough three years between COVID and shutdowns that have to do with the writer and actor strikes. You know, crew has been very adversely affected by both of those things. So, you know, I think everybody's going to be a little bit on edge going into next year, knowing that an IATSE deal has to be made and that the chances are good that IATSE is going to be very aggressive with asking for quite a few different deal points. And if there's any resistance on the part of Ampus, then I'm not going to say we're in for another strike, but certainly it's you know a question mark. So we'll see how that goes. The entertainment industry, it's, uh, it's different every day. <laughs> <laughs> it is. And, and, you know, it has shifted rapidly. And, and you know, that that's the thing is that that is the root of a lot of these strikes is that the entertainment industry is different every day and it shifts very quickly. New technologies change things for everybody. And historically, the producer's organization has taken their bargaining strategy has basically been like, this is new. Let's sign this deal now and wait and see how it works out. And that was very much the thing that was being applied to artificial intelligence, as an example, with the WGA bargaining. And this, after seeing years of, I think, erosions of of residual income based on the way similar negotiations were held around streaming, Everybody was like, no, 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 no. We're not doing that again. Trust trust the the producer side of things to say like, okay, no, we'll we'll take a, we'll we'll sign this deal and then work out all the kinks later on. And and you can trust that we have everyone's best interests in heart and not ours. Correct. Yeah. So just keep in mind, that's what powers a lot of these negotiations is that 
constant movement of technology and the fact that you know everybody's trying to maximize it for themselves and uh, there's not always a willingness to share. I mean, that we've definitely seen on, on the cinema side, this affecting uh, release date changes, certainly Dune Part 2 has, I think, been the biggest profile film to kind of shuffle its release date backwards. Hopefully with the SAG-AFTRA, a strike will resolve itself shortly. But in the meantime, we have seen the industry kind of adapt to the way these strikes have kind of put a halt on marketing. Maybe there, there aren't as many films that have been hitting theaters, are set to hit theaters in, in the upcoming weeks than were initially expected. Um, I think probably the biggest surprise and uh, definitely happiest surprise over the last uh, few weeks is the Taylor Swift concert film, the concert film of her Eras tour, which is just swooping along into theaters starting on October 13th. Definitely a welcome addition to the calendar for our Partners in Cinema exhibition and absolutely just decimated uh, cinema ticket sales, uh, pre-order records. Uh, we've had uh, a, another uh, kind of update on that and also another superstar coming, um, coming to the cinemas. So uh, Chad, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, after smashing AMC pre-sale records, AMC Entertainment announced just after we recorded last week that Taylor Swift Bears tour concert film is going global and is going to be playing in 100 countries around the world in every Odeon cinema location throughout Europe. So with those pipeline of agreements with cinema operators throughout the world, AMC Entertainment has already announced its next release. I told Rebecca, she needs to buy us all a lottery ticket because in early September, Rebecca, you predicted a Beyonce concert movie, which AMC has just announced will be arriving December 1st. Yeah, as we record this podcast, it has just been announced. Tickets have just uh, gone on sale at AMC. Uh, Circuits such as Imagine and Marcus and Alamo um, are also going to be be screening the film. Uh, I'm sure we're going to be getting additional confirmations and announcements about additional chains as the day and the week goes on. But yeah, this is for her uh, her Renaissance tour, which I believe wrapped up on Sunday night. Yeah, in Missouri. In Kansas City. Yeah, right here. With Taylor Swift being at the Kansas City game and everything. I don't know. They've had a wild few days. But yeah, uh, per AMC, which is releasing theatrically uh, both the Taylor Swift and Beyonce concert documentaries, it will air Thursdays, Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays for a minimum of four weeks with multiple showtimes programmed uh, throughout the day. All ticket prices for all formats are going to uh, be set at $22 plus, you know, fees and, you know, various mobile platforms, you know, on, on a case by case basis. Yeah, Beyonce doesn't want to be to those, uh, any of those Tuesday matinee screenings. I guess she's <laughs> just, just going for the long weekend. And Rebecca, you, you said that already today there were some IMAX and Dolby screenings that were sold out at the location you were looking at? Oh yeah, there were like there were some front row seats available, but I I'm not doing that. So um, yeah. yeah, the IMAX and Dolby uh, were were snapped up. I, I know this had something that had been rumored for a while. This concert film, so I guess the Beehive was kind of had their had their fingers poised over the keyboards to snap up the best tickets when they became available. But I'm yeah, I'm uh, I'm I'm excited. I she did a concert film a few years back, Homecoming, that was a, a recording or a, a compilation of her Coachella pair of performances that was on Netflix. And it's one that I have like kind of, it's a, it's really rewatchable. Like it's one of those I've kept on in the background a lot. And I always just kind of was like, dang, this would be so cool to see, uh, you know, in a cinema 
with other people. I'm, I'm not like a huge Beyonce fan or, or anything like that to the extent that I know some people are obsessed with her. Like I'm, I couldn't, you know, spout out lyrics at the drop of a hat, but I am super excited, mostly just for the experience. So I've seen like one concert film before, but it was a rep screening of Sign of the Times. So there was people in the sense that it was Prince and he was the best to ever do it, but it was like a Thursday screening. So the, the vibe in the in the room was, I'm sure, a lot less raucous than this is going to be. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. I do have a question. We discussed this a little bit last week uh, or one of the last couple of shows, but I think it's worth bringing up again. AMC backing now two massive releases by two huge artists. You know, what is their plan for the next five years? Is this, you know, what what is AMC doing? Do we know? Yeah, is this a new part of their business? Is this, I mean, kind of more individual one-off type of things based on pre-existing relationships. I mean, once you've done Taylor Swift and Beyonce, I don't, those seem like the big two. Like, I don't know what other artist you were going to book who is going to have that level of excitement. Like maybe Ariana Grande, but like they got the big two right off the bat. So yeah, I'm, I'm not, uh, AMC has not said anything really official on that at this but it's interesting for sure. Well, I mean, the the next big ones are, you know, when BTS does a reunion show after they've all finished their various, you know, individual sojourns. There are a couple of other big international acts, although those acts kind of, you know, maybe have deals locked up with Trafalgar or I have a lot of questions about it. I have no answers to any of them. Or is it just a matter of like, there were two really gigantic tours going on at the same time and both of them were being recorded to do something with eventually. So just, you know, a coincidence sort of thing. But exactly, definitely will be a, a welcome boost to the box office. After this past weekend we had, it wasn't, you know, two weekends ago, I, I think it was the lowest grossing uh, weekend box office of, of 2023 up to this point. And hopefully and probably, you know, nearly certainly all 23 at all. We had four films coming out. At the top of the box office, we had from Paramount, Paw Patrol, the Mighty Movie, opening to 23 million domestic and 23.1 million international. So uh, just about a 50-50 split. Uh, A little bit higher, we were predicting 21.7 domestic for the weekend, but it's, you know, pretty much Pretty much on, uh, on on the nose there. Per information we got from Paramount, it over-indexed in the Northeast and Midwest U.S., uh, strongly over-indexed, rather, in the Northeast and Midwest U.S., over-indexed in the South Central and Southeast, and slightly under-indexed in the Western U.S., uh, with major over-indexing markets, including New York, Philadelphia, Boston, Minneapolis, Detroit, Cleveland, and St. Louis, which I'm surprised by uh, the New York component because like on Saturday, Brooklyn was just underwater. So we had some some crazy flash floods going on. So people were still getting out to take their their kids to Paw Patrol. Overwhelmingly, the opening weekend audience was uh, 90% of family audience. Kind of curious as to what that other 10% is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Then uh, in position number two, we had a new release uh, from Lionsgate, Saw X, uh, 18 million domestic, which is above the 13.5 million that we were predicting. And then in third place from 20th Century Studios, we had uh, the creator opening at 14 million, slightly under the 15 to 20 million opening range uh, that we predicted. About half of that, 49% uh, of its of its earnings 
uh, are from premium format screens, including 20% uh, from IMAX. I got out and I saw this this film uh, over the weekend. I, I was not a huge fan of it. I really, I really like uh, Rogue One from that director, but at this point, after after the creator considering his you know feature filmography, he's uh, he's one he's still one for four for me. But I, I was very happy to put my uh, my ticket money towards uh, supporting you know original IP a, a vote for that even if the film itself closing out the top five uh, the fourth week of the Nun two uh, which up to this point it had three weeks in spot number one uh, week four it earned four point six million dollars domestic a surprising addition uh, to the top five here in spot number five. We have from Fathom Events, The Blind, uh, which is kind of a biopic of uh, the patriarch of the uh, the TV series Duck Dynasty, which, including Thursday grosses. It was it was the highest grossing film domestically on Thursday, uh, Thursday to Sunday period. It came in at four point nine million on only around seventeen hundred screens, which is needless to say, by far a lot lot less than than any other of the the films uh, that, that were new to the theaters this weekend. Chad, you spoke with the, with the director of uh, this film. You can go to boxofficepro.com to see that. But this is a kind of a, an innovative, interesting step uh, for Fathom. It's, it's a little bit of a, a change in how they uh, typically approach releasing their films. Can you tell us a little bit about how this rollout was different for them? Right. So Fathom Events announced at CinemaCon, actually, that they were moving into the world of specialty distribution with longer and more robust theatrical runs rather than a one-off night event. And uh, The Blind uh, marks that foray. They did also a, a collaboration with Bleecker Street a few months ago on Golda. And yeah, I talked to director Andrew Hyatt about the the film, as you mentioned, the patriarch and matriarch of the Duck Dynasty family. And it really dives into their backstory. Andrew shared that initially the script was more anecdotal and comedy driven like the reality show. But when he heard Phil talking about this deep, dark, secret background, he said, well, that's powerful stuff. That's that's the movie. Yeah, so it, so it kind of dives into that part of their family history. And yeah, it's a, it's an interesting take. And I think it, it has captured a lot of the faith-focused audiences with that, that element to the story. Well, you can uh, check on uh, boxofficepro.com to keep up on the news about uh, what Fathom's next uh, more, more limited release uh, will be. I assume that even... Before this came out on Thursday, they were planning on doing uh, doing more when the when the project was right. Certainly, they're going to be doing more now. So, uh, congratulations, uh, congratulations to our friends at Fathom for cracking the top five this weekend. Uh, not so congratulations to our friends at Sony. Uh, dumb money due to the strikes and the the issues around marketing. Uh, did sort of a, a three phase release strategy, culminating this past weekend uh, with the film finally expanding to wide release uh, on about 2,800 screens. It only earned $3.5 million, coming in outside the top five at number seven, behind, uh, behind Holdover Haunting in Venice. We were predicting $6.5 million, got $3.5. I think probably as uh, our chief analyst, Sean Robbins, discussed last week on the podcast, like maybe it's just too, you know, it's about the Reddit GameStop meme phenomenon. And, and maybe that was just a little bit too niche a subject to really grab moviegoers en masse. It, it does. I mean, I, I saw the film at, at Geneva Convention. I, I really uh, 
I really, you know, it was a fun film. I, I had I had a fun time with it. It does, our editorial director, Daniel Lurie, did an interview with director Craig Gillespie on, again, boxofhistory.com, talking about how this is the sort of like, this is the real story of this crazy thing that went on. I mean, we're seeing a lot of that go to, you know, Hulu or go to streaming form of miniseries, some of it to theatrical, like we had the Air Jordan movie and the Blackberry movie, but for the most part, these sorts of stories are leaning more towards the, the miniseries TV route. And Craig Gillespie was specifically like, no, we wanted this to be a communal, you know, film experience. I don't know, maybe I hope that that this film not really breaking out doesn't mean that the next dumb money will be shut, you know, that the next dumb buddy yeah. will be going. Yeah, I hope not. I do think the rollout was a little confusing, at least for me, of when is it actually coming out. But it's a well-made film. It it does tell the story of those events really well. And it's a lot of really funny actors who could not yeah. go out and do promo. So a certain, a certain, uh, I think a certain part of it is is just is just bad luck. But yeah. it was, I got it. It was weird. Like it's obviously set during the pandemic and, right. and seeing people again with like masks over their half their face for big chunks of the movie. I was like, Oh yeah, I, I can't really hear or understand people when they're wearing masks. I <laughs> right. almost managed to forget about that one, but I cannot understand this dialogue. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I think if it were released last year, I might've had some PTSD. I think it was finally just about the right timing where I could actually laugh at some of these things that they're talking about with the pandemic. Yeah, but maybe too soon for a lot of other people, or maybe as you suggested, it's just a release strategy that didn't bring the level of awareness that it actually was coming out in wide release. Now out next weekend in theaters from Universal, we have The Exorcist Believer, um, which we are predicting for an opening weekend range of 18 to 27 million and a domestic total range of 41 to 69 million. Russ, I wanted to ask you about this one because it's the first in a trilogy reboot of a beloved classic horror film uh, from director David Gordon Green. We saw this with, with Halloween, which was, I know you were kind of mixed on critically between the three films. They did pretty well theatrically considering, you know, right smack dab during the pandemic and a day and date release on Peacock. This one is going exclusively theatrical. I mean, it just, it, it, Having seen the trailer for The Exorcist Believer at CinemaCon, it does look very much like David Gordon Green's take on, on Halloween. What's your expectation for this title? Uh, yeah, what are your thoughts? Yeah, it's interesting that David Gordon Green and, J- and producer Jason Blum, who work together on the Halloween movies, have sort of with the, re- you know, when and how the second and third movies were released, day and date strategies during pandemic, kind of the middle and the end of the pandemic. As far as this movie you know, the trailer, the two trailers, there are two now, neither of them plays for me at all. And did the Halloween trailers play when that marketing first started? Yeah. Okay. The Exorcist is such an iconic thing. And obviously there are sequels to The Exorcist. The first immediate sequel, uh, The Heretic, 
is roundly dismissed and derided. I think it's the sort of movie that has an audience. The Exorcist 3 is great. Anyway, I'm digressing. The point is taking that Halloween sequel approach to The Exorcist now seems like, I don't know, I think that fans are wary. I'll put it that way. I think that there's a lot of speculation. The response to those three Halloween movies was very divisive. Fans, by and large, hate the third movie, the movie which I like a lot. Most people do not like at all. And so leaping from that into kind of a revamp of The Exorcist is, it's gutsy, and I appreciate that. I'm not an analyst, so I'm not going to say this is what it's going to make, but I would keep my expectations on the low side. It definitely seems thematically quite similar to the Halloween trilogy that that Gabe Dorman Green did in the sense that it's the classic movie kind of expanded out to a three-film series that kind of tackles multi-generational, like, inherited family trauma, sort of, you know, widens out the scope of the film. So, yeah, I mean, I guess it, it, it does, it is kind of going to be impacted by how the I don't know if you can say legacy when it's only been a few years, but how the perception of, of fans and of the horror community has kind of settled about that Halloween trilogy. I don't know. I'm, I'm probably going to end up seeing it at one point just because Eric, uh, my boyfriend Eric, he's a uh, exorcist was huge for him. He also likes the third one. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know how widely known it is that this is the first of three movies, you know, certainly your average opening Friday night audience. A lot of that audience might not realize that this is planned as the first of three, but that to me in this case seems, I don't know, it seems like a reach, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, I, mean, I, I, I hope that, I mean, I just remember seeing, you know, seeing Dune and then getting to where it says, like, this has been part one and next time on part two, like that, not having people not come in knowing that this is going to be a multi-part thing seems potentially risky, but then maybe that's just, I feel like there have been a lot of instances over the past decade or so of, you know, we're going to split this one film into two films, trilogy or what have you. It's like when you do that, the first film still needs to have an ending. You still need to have an arc. It still needs to be an actual complete film that's not, doesn't just feel like it cuts off midway through everyone's arc. I mean, I think people experienced that with Spider-Verse this year, mm-hmm. where thematically Spider-Verse has a whole arc, but the second movie, but the second movie to me really felt like, yeah, the, it was an unsatisfying ending. I walked away from that like, oh. My oh, brother felt the same way. He didn't know that okay. it was a, a one part, one of two, and, and it literally cuts off mid-scene, and he was pissed. Yeah, I wasn't. Yeah, I like that movie. There's a, a lot of that movie that I like a lot, but that story structure bugged me then, and it bugs me more as I think about it. And a bold, a bold move for Bloomhouse to announce that they're having three parts, given the performance of some of those sequels. Yeah, I mean, they're. I guess. I guess if if this one does particularly poorly, they can always go day and date with the sequel or two. They. That's a, there's precedent. <laughs> so. What I will say is for anyone listening who hasn't watched The Exorcist 3, do yourself a favor and watch The Exorcist 3 if completely insane horror sequels sound like a good thing to you. I mean, I, I love The Howling 2, and that's top-tier insane horror sequel. I, have, I haven't seen Exorcist 2. Do I need to see 2 before I see 3? Or? No, I mean, it's functionally a completely disassociated... Exorcist 3 is almost a completely different thing, and it has one of the best jump scares ever. It's got great stuff from Brad Dourif. There you go. No, Exorcist 3 is just like a weird 
movie and kind of a wonderful one. Well, yeah, that's uh, that's definitely on the list. I have yet to officially kick off October by watching a horror film, so that might have to be what I start with. But yeah, that's it for catching up with the box office and general industry news of the week after after the past two weeks where there's really not been much by way of news. We finally have uh, the breaking of the strike and then the Beyonce concert, uh, concert film to talk about. So it feels like after a slow September, we're revving back up a little bit. Everyone's kind of coming out of hibernation, maybe. Next week, we'll, we'll be going over how the Exorcist Believer did and, and what kind of our our final benchmarks are for Taylor Swift, the Eras tour on October 13th. Uh, but before that, after this uh, brief break, like I mentioned, we will be speaking with Bobby Bagby Ford of B&B Theaters, a, a chain that has definitely looked at the lessons of the last two years in terms of there being limited films on the slate and, you know, cinemas really need to do more than just screening films. They need to explore additional concepts. They need to lean into spectacle. It's definitely a chain that has been at the forefront of that. I mean, I think to call it a a revolution in the way North American cinemas looks at the way we theatrically screen films, I think it's, it's a dramatic way to say it, but I also kind of think it's true. So uh, it's, it's an interesting, interesting time to be covering this business for sure. Russ and Chad, thank you uh, so much for joining in uh, here with us this week. Hi, Bobby. It's so uh, it's so great to speak with you here from the Geneva Convention. Yeah, ever since the last few years, I mean, b has been so like innovative and interesting in terms of all these different non-screening room concepts. Like I remember, at, I don't remember which webinar it was, but like there's, you have a, an auditorium where there's like a spin cycle class. Mm-hmm. That's, there's so many interesting things. Like, can you give us kind of an update on how that's going? Are, are spinning class movie theaters going to be like taking over the nation? Or So I don't know about that. I, I, that is a really unique concept that we have that's actually rented out by a fitness studio that is that runs that auditorium. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is a really cool way to use the space because we don't need this the large amount of screens that maybe we had in the early 90s mm-hmm. so it's a great use of space we are also doing cool things like flex rooms that we can do karaoke or gaming nights mm-hmm. or birthday parties cocktail hours all of those kind of things as well mm-hmm. so we're trying to be as innovative as we possibly can and they're going well I think continuing to use our spaces as experiences and reasons for people to get out of their homes in addition to seeing the movie but to linger longer mm-hmm. is a big priority. Mm-hmm. I mean it'll be you were already doing the whole cinema entertainment center complex like mm-hmm. before you know every before it got before it got popular. <laughs> um, so you have a little I mean that seems like it's kind of baked in, into the DNA of BNB being a little experimental and you know absolutely. trying so one of our core values is innovation. So it yeah. is absolutely something we lean into on a regular basis and we have several LECs luxury entertainment centers and they're going really well and it's what's interesting about that is like bowling for instance typically does better when the same times that movies are maybe not as productive I guess, mm-hmm. or lucrative. And so it seems like it's a really nice cyclical business to go hand in hand. Yeah. So I guess people must have been bowling a lot in September. Yeah, so right. So <laughs> the fall and winter are really good bowling months and early mm-hmm. spring before when people are ready to get out of their homes, but it's maybe not quite warm enough, particularly in the Midwest, to, mm-hmm. to get back out. So yeah, bowling and our arcades, we've got lots of other things coming in the future. And mm-hmm. so it's exciting. Yeah. What did you guys end up doing for Barbie? I mean, I know that's 
for a chain that you know, one of your core values is innovation. That must have just been like Christmas. Like, you go all out. We had so much fun. It was awesome. We had big Barbie parties everywhere, and we made these cool backdrops in most of our locations. We just did everything pink that you can imagine. Mm -hmm. We had really cool drinks and experiences and parties and all of that kind of stuff. It was was a wonderful time Mm -hmm. that our guests loved and our staff loved and our bottom line loved, and it was just a win all around. (laughs) Yeah, it felt like a... You know, obviously, like studios, like Warner Brothers and the cinemas were working together really, really closely on that. It wasn't like there was that backup from the studio, but it felt like this has to be replicable. Like nothing's going to be that big and that crazy as Barbie was. I think that kind of just surprised everybody. Like even the people who were at CinemaCon, like people were, oh, the Barbie box since like April. I think it still surprised everyone how well it did. But it's what lessons do you take from that that are replicable for other films like Taylor Swift seems like something that would lend itself pretty well to that, even though I know I imagine her team is pretty like tight fisted on what people are allowed to do. But still, you can there have to be like lessons you can take to carry that through future films. A thousand percent. So I feel like it became a cultural phenomenon, which is something that you can't make happen that just happens but I think the lesson that we can learn is a couple of things I think Barbie was really fun and Mm -hmm. right now we need fun and joy Mm -hmm. and things to be excited about it was female driven which is something we don't haven't seen enough of in Mm -hmm. the marketplace and I think Taylor Swift is another example of that and I also think it was multi-generational grandmas wanted to go with their grandkids and moms of course were in the mix it also was a girls night out I think the other piece to it, though, that there was a me- there was a message that wasn't too heavy handed, but yet it was inspiring. Mm-hmm. And I think finding that correct tone, that's a huge ask for the studios. Mm-hmm. But I do think those things played into that. And then I also think they Warner Brothers did a wonderful job in partnership with mm-hmm. us as exhibitors, really working with influencers and getting into the consciousness of society. So it wasn't just a normal marketing campaign, it really, really touched mm-hmm. um, so many facets. And I think especially the influencer path that they took was incredibly smart. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is something that like you get so you can get hyper local with influencers. You can get hyper specific as to the sorts of films that I mean, I Gran Turismo, there has to like, I mean, there's video game influencers and racing influencers and, and looking forward to the films that are coming out. I'm sure they're doing influencers <laughs> or the sci-fi like comic book scene. Yeah, we use we use my grow influencers all the time as well as some more national ones. It's fun to have those partnerships. I actually think I prefer to work with those micro influencers because they're so excited mm-hmm. and they're in their communities and then people see that their friend's mom really knows this person and then it becomes something that they mm-hmm. they trust and know. I think advertising, marketing has changed so drastically mm-hmm. even since pre-COVID, but even in the last 12 months people are less and less likely to click on anything or engage with anything that really appears like an ad. Mm-hmm. So you have to be so genuine, genuine mm-hmm. and really focus on honestly. And so you have to find those micro influencers that are passionate about whatever that is mm-hmm. and they'll hit the right people because yeah. anytime that we try to lean into a traditional ad, it just 
falls flat. It just doesn't work. And I think the studios are, are doing a really good job of that, some better than others. But yeah, I think society has changed in the way that they want to be advertised to. Yeah, I mean, I'm for these screenings and I see the influencers with like the camera rigs and like you look like Ripley from Aliens or something. <laughs> and, like they're so excited just yeah. to, it's that sort of enthusiasm that you really have to communicate and it can't, like it is genuine coming from them or mm-hmm. it's like, you know, we really love the movies, but we're not excited for every movie that comes not out. Not every person is excited <laughs> for, for everything. everything yeah. I always say, if I was selling lipstick, my job would be so much easier because it would be the same people, the same demographic, the same product, mm. but that's just not what we do. We reinvent ourselves multiple times every single week because we have a different audience and a different palette every mm. week. I mean, B&B, you're one of the few chains, like in our, we do the big yearly giants of exhibition list where I'm sure we've sent you emails or like chasing everyone down. Like, what was your, what was your screen count? What's your screen count? And of the top, like you're the biggest chain in North America that actually increased in, in theater and screen count between, you know, the last full year. One of the things that happened is we sat down really right at the beginning of the pandemic, like three days after we had really shut down because we're a family business, because we all live really close to each other. We mm-hmm. all were in my parents' living room discussing like, what are we going to do? How are we mm-hmm. going to navigate this? And dad said, there is going to be opportunity in all of this. That sounds maybe opportunistic, but we tried to be realistic about that. And he really tasked Brock with let us, the three of us, my sister, my dad, and myself work on these things. Brock, you start making calls as you hear about them, find Mm -hmm. out. First and foremost, we started reaching out to landlords to work with them. And as a result, because we were very proactive, they they did work with us. Mm -hmm. And then new properties came into our fold because of that. And we were able to make really incredible deals that we would not have been able to Mm -hmm. make outside of those extreme circumstances. And that that has really slowed down and become more normalized now. Mm -hmm. We're getting opportunities still for growth, but they're more typical from pre-COVID. And so, yeah, we've picked up some really incredible properties, some incredible managers that came with those properties, some new B&B family members. And I'm really thankful for that, for that piece of it that allowed us to grow during that time. Are you still in, in growth mode? I mean, you're, like, <laughs> yes. you're, I mean, you're trying so many different concepts. Look, you have to have auditories to try them all in. Like, how do yeah. you decide, like, what is going to work in a different location? Like, which market is going to maybe be sustainable for, like, some theaters you have, like, the, like, off track, the betting, the cinema oh sports book sports book that's a oh so we don't have that so we have um like that's that's relaxed but we are looking at some of the sports options for sure we just look at the at different markets it depends if we're building new we have a new location in red oak texas that's coming out that we'll have a bunch of new concepts Mm -hmm. we also have places that we were remodeling so you're stuck with sort of the the original footprint of the building that you're trying to Mm -hmm. go into it's also just looking at the demographic you know if it's really family focused what's the medium age for the area what's the income level for the area and then Mm -hmm. go from there but some of it is just purely restriction on the building if it's a remodel Mm -hmm. but i do think we're leaning more and more into offering multiple experiences in a building whenever possible, not just in auditoriums, but our bars and arcades or bowling, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, do you open a cinema at this point that doesn't have a bar or bars or alcohol of some kind? Like if you like that, really, I can't think of any. No, I think customers really expect that at this point. Mm -hmm. It's extra revenue and it's really changed. I remember when we opened our location in Southern Missouri, 
more than a decade ago. There was all these restrictions that alcohol can only be in this one auditorium and it wasn't allowed to leave that and we had all these restrictions and now that that county mm-hmm. has even changed. It's just a really different environment. I think yeah. it's become more normalized. Maybe like you said, it's a family company. You're not like beholden to go off and you know check with investors and da 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 da. I want to ask about the customer service element because I feel like that's become so important. It was important before, but I feel like now you have the opportunity to, a second opportunity to make a first impression with a lot of people. And just as a movie theater, you know, I go to the movies a lot and not to name specific but my experience isn't talking to other people. Like sometimes that element is really lacking. And if that's lacking, then you could have like the best screen, the best technology, the best sound, but it, that's going to have a really negative effect. As you're expanding, as, as you're bringing in these new GMs, new teams, how do you communicate that? How do you make sure that everyone's on the same page and providing that, like thanking people and actually being present? Like, I swear to God, if sometimes the lights don't go down and like you have to hunt around to find someone and it's so frustrating. Yeah, it is. So I think a couple of things. So we have all company calls regularly. Mm-hmm. So as a leadership team and as my family, we make it a point to try to be connected to our managers. Mm-hmm. I think the struggle for everyone, especially in, in our industry where we were truly shut down for so long, we lost a lot of, of that sort of mid-level staff mm-hmm. who might have been around for a few years and became like a shift leader or an assistant mm-hmm. manager, a more part-time kind of position that might have grown into leadership roles. Mm-hmm. We missed on that opportunity. So there wasn't this continued training that happened. There's a break in continuity. Absolutely. We had to completely start over. Well, we kept, we were very fortunate to maintain most of our general managers and corporate staff, which was Mm -hmm. incredible. But our frontline, really the person who touches the customer the most, we have to kind of start over. Mm -hmm. So we really have been talking a lot as a leadership team about starting at the very beginning. Don't assume that anyone knows anything, Mm -hmm. which is a hard thing to get over because you don't want to be condescending sending in any way, but it really is starting over with customers. And you grew service. up in the industry, so for you all, this is second nature. Yeah, for, for sure. Uh, we have lots of pictures of me in like a bouncy seat behind the concession stand. I think it is something we, we lean into a lot. We talk about the value of customer service, and I think the most important thing, and something we stress all the time with our teams, that it's most important to hire the person. You can train somebody to do whatever as long as they're like willing to learn. Like it's not rocket science. Like it's a fun job. Right. And so hiring people who are passionate about movies mm-hmm. and are kind people will go the farthest. Mm-hmm. And so as long as we're creating an environment that is fun to be in, because that's one of our mm-hmm. core values is fun and joy. And so as long as you're hiring those people who have that idea, and also if it's a fun place to work, then it's yeah. a fun place to have your customers want to yeah. come to. So and you can listen to them. Like I was speaking to, I think it was it was Rich Dodgers in Warehouse, said, and he was like, yeah, our community liaison manager for the theater is a huge Swifty. Like there are these opportunities for ideas and for outreach within communities that maybe like from a corporate level, you're not going to know what's going down in every like community that you're mm-hmm. on that granular level, like the people who work there with boots on the ground. Like it just feels like such a bad opportunity to waste. Absolutely. So we have marketing positions in many of our locations that do just that, that mm-hmm. reach out to the community. And and also we try to find people on every staff. We'll say, who's a Star Wars fan? Or here's who's the Swifty mm-hmm. on your team and let's lean into what they what might would you want to do. Exactly. So we try really hard to do that. Now that we're, you know, fingers crossed, thank goodness, one of the strikes is over. 
That's right. That's right. And hopefully the other one is you know, swiftly to follow. Ah. There you go. So hopefully, like, the schedule changes. The schedule's what it is at this point. What are you looking forward to throughout the rest of the year? I feel like September is always kind of a slow reset, and then you have, like, award season, holiday season, everything ramps up again. Just, like, from a personal level and oh. also, you know, from a more B&B, wider perspective, what are you excited about? Yeah, so I'm I, from, a, from a personal level and, I guess, business perspective, it's nice to sort of feel like we're starting to settle back into a new normal. And there's consistency in product. There's consistency in employees. There's just a sense of, like, okay, now we can attack the processes. We're not in like that kind we of need panic mode. We're no longer mode, in flight like, or flight. We actually yeah. can start to get the work done, you know? Mm. Um, so that's really good. I think one of the messages that I want to get out to the industry that I feel really passionate about is that I think as an industry, we need to have a united front of positivity mm. because I think, gosh, the naysayers are out there, but we really proved them wrong. Look at us still standing. Mm. However, I think that it will only behoove us if as an industry, we really get out there with a positive message, that Mm -hmm. we are back, that we have options, that we have upgraded, that we are Mm -hmm. ready to entertain the Mm -hmm. general public. And so I think, you know, we always say in in our boardroom that we can discuss things and duke things out and disagree, but then when we exit the boardroom, we are a united front and we would never Mm -hmm. put each other down I mean, it's customer service, it's hospitality. That's the same thing, right, exactly. So I think as an entire industry, we need to put out a message of positivity. Mm-hmm. I think that will behoove all of us. Personally, I love getting to spend time with my kids and I'm mm-hmm. looking forward to Halloween and the holidays and all of that, mm-hmm. you know, fun stuff. My kids are so excited to see Trolls and to see Wish. There's so much good product out there. Marvel, Finally the kids Marvels. Oh my Finally gosh. kids movies coming Yeah, out. my kids are big Marvel people and mm-hmm. so um, they're excited about all of that universe too. We're a little selective. They're right on that cusp of being able to see all of those. Yeah. But so much, so many good movies and that's really fun. Oh, Wonka. More than I can't one wait coming for Wonka out as well. For which one? Wonka. Oh my god! Cannot wait for Wonka. I like that it looks like the the Gene Wilder one. Like it, that was that was one that was on VHS that yeah. I like wore that tape out yeah, as a kid. Yeah, we actually read the book with our kids in preparation as well, and they were they're just so amped up for it. It's exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really easy to kind of feel downtrodden because we're all still clawing back from mm-hmm. from the last couple of years. But I do think we need to draw land in the sand and jump over it and say it's a new day and a new dawn. It is time for us to be positive in the press. I think it's important. I think it's really, really important to be positive. This has been the latest episode of the Box Office Podcast. Thank you to George and John of the Geneva Convention, Bobby Bagby Ford of the Movie Theaters, and of course, my co-host for this episode, Chad Kenner and Russ Fisher. The Box Office Podcast is co-produced by Box Office Pro, the Box Office Company, and Court Edit Podcast. Uh, please tune in next week for the latest in news and box office from the cinema industry. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day.